Okay, so we are going to, we'll be, be beginning on page 253, and let's pray, and then we'll continue. Our Father, uh, we come to you because you have shown yourself so gracious toward us and given us the name that's above every name to draw near with confidence, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. So thank you for him, his work, and the work that he continues to do and his promise that he would not leave us as orphans and yet he would send the power of your Holy Spirit, send your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful gift, Lord. And, and uh, we, we pray that we would, as Paul would urge the New Testament believers, that we would walk worthy of the calling with which you have called us. And uh, we ask for your help to do that. Lord, uh, we pray for our darkened, hardened nation and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit to convict of sin, especially the sin of unbelief. Lord, as the Lord Jesus said, that he would send uh, the Holy Spirit and he would convict the world of sin because they do not believe in him. Lord, and this is a fundamental conviction, Lord, we pray for in the people that we witness to, in our unsaved family members, that your spirit would do that work of, of convicting regarding unbelief and the ignoring and rejecting, rejecting of your wonderful son. And forgive us for the times and the periods of life where we have done that. So we pray for that conviction upon many in, in our nation and that you would help us preach the gospel and not be ashamed uh, of preaching it and that we would preach it in a way that is really centered upon the Lord Jesus and, and what that means. Thank you for this evening and for one another we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, my eyes always go out when they're closed for a while. <laughs> uh, we're reaching the end of the Gospels, and we've been looking at that period of time from Christ's resurrection to his ascension. And we've been going through all of his appearances during that 40 days, and we started a week or so ago on Jesus at the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And only John records that in John's chapter 20 and 21. And we reached the point last week of where Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me in that interaction? And, and that's where we stopped. And where we're picking it up tonight is in John 21, around verse 18. And in that passage, we have a prophecy concerning Peter and John uh, in the future years. And I'm just going to read the passage through and then we'll, we'll go in detail. But I'm going to back up to verse 17 so you can see the, the flow here. Uh, he is, Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? 
And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Okay. So that's our portion for tonight. And uh, so once the threefold questioning ended, which I'm sure Peter was very glad that the questioning was over, we weren't going to go more than three rounds, Jesus shifts and, begin, and gives this prophecy about Peter. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. So, um, we do not need to guess what this means since John tells us what it means in the next verse. This he spoke signifying by what death he, Peter, would glorify God. So we know what it means. And uh, Peter is going to die as a martyr. That we know for sure from what John has said in verse 19. Uh, but we know more than that is we also know that um, <clears throat> Peter will follow Jesus and be crucified. And that expression, I'm trying to find it in my notes, yeah. Uh, not only is Jesus telling Peter that he will die as a martyr, but that he will be crucified. The expression, you will stretch out your hands in the ancient world was widely understood to refer to death by crucifixion. So Jesus has revealed to Peter that he is going to, going to be crucified at this point. Now, <clears throat> it's instructive to understand Jesus' prophecy regarding Peter in the light of Jesus' earlier interaction with Peter in John 13, 36 about following, uh, about following Jesus. <clears throat> and I can't, is it John? What do I have here? John 
chapter 13, verse 36. Here it is. Okay. And this is early on the evening of the Passover evening. This is early that evening, John chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you shall follow me afterward. Okay, you shall follow me afterward. Peter will follow Jesus after and actually be crucified. Jesus is telling him right then, where I'm going, I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to the Father. And in, Peter is going to go on the same path, isn't he? Peter's going to follow after and what? Be crucified and go to the Father. Okay. And I don't think that that is a stretch. Peter will have the opportunity to what he claimed he would do. Peter claimed, I will lay down my life for you. That was his claim. And Peter is going to have the opportunity to do that. What he failed to do the first time, he's going to have an opportunity to make it right. Think about that. Think about him. Think about Peter. He's going to have another opportunity to lay down his life for Jesus whom he loved. And this time, he's going to succeed. And Jesus is as much as telling him that here. Okay, You follow me after. <clears throat> so, did Peter understand Jesus' reference that morning after breakfast uh, about crucifixion? I, I think we can assume we can assume that he did, that he understood that. So, <clears throat> and by this death he will glorify God. So Jesus being glorified, glorifying God by lifted up, this, this attitude, Peter got a hold of that and understood that, and it shows up in his letter in 1 Peter. It shows up in verses 14 through 16 of how we glorify God. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but what? On your part, he is glorified. See? See the connection? Okay, so Peter's got that. <laughs> uh, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's business, Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him, what? Glorify God in this matter. Okay, so, so that's what John said. Jesus told Peter by what, by what death he would glorify God. And Peter now, when he's writing this first letter, that, that's all clear to him. He, he understands that. That he is going to glorify God by suffering for Christ's name. So if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. And uh, on their part, he's blaspheming, but on your part, okay, they're blaspheming. <laughs> when they reproach you, they're blaspheming. And what are you doing? 
you're glorifying God. <laughs> Keep that in mind. They're blaspheming when they're reproaching Christians. And when you're bearing that reproach without retaliation, you're glorifying God. Okay? And, and the ultimate of that is martyrdom. I mean, the ultimate of that situation is, is if, if one, one is martyred. So, <clears throat> yeah. I dealt with a question this week on the glory of God as it pertains to the dichotomy of um, God living and existing in glory and whether human acts add or subtract from his glory and whether um, every moment, um, you know, is for the additional benefit of God's glory. And I was, and and that was a good verse. I didn't use it. I used other scripture, Mm -hmm. but you know, Peter saying that um, someone can blaspheme God to try to detract from God, but in another sense, that action yes. is at, is giving God glory, yeah. um, and that we don't often see the benefit or God's means or, or what he's trying to accomplish for his glory. Um, but I had just encouraged someone to not take, you know, a simplistic view of God's glory, because he possesses glory, right? He doesn't mm. give it away or add to it. Is that right? Yes. <clears throat> yeah, there are... The more you think about what does it mean to glorify God, it, it's co- it can be complicated. There's different aspects to that. The, you know, see, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it off the cuff <laughs> other than how we've re- referred to it here. Um, <clears throat> so <clears throat> Peter, in his life, is aware of how how this is going to work and how he's going to bring glory to God. And Ritterboss makes this comment, the rest of Peter's life must be lived in the shadow of the cross just as Jesus' was. Think about that. Jesus knew from the beginning that he was the Lamb of God and he knew his hour was coming and he knew that all his life. And now Peter is going to live the similar experience all the, the, the rest of his life. Um, I don't know if I'd like that. I, I, would you like that? I, 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 don't, I, I would say no, don't, don't tell me. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But, but Jesus told Peter, Jesus this. G- uh, Jesus decided, Jesus wanted to speak to Peter this way. So, uh, as such a man, he will live as such a man who has renounced all earthly ties and who has declared his supreme loyalty to Jesus. Peter is commissioned to serve as shepherd of Jesus' flock as the great shepherd takes his leave. Okay. I think that was a significant thought from the vantage point of Peter uh, hearing this. Well, by the time John wrote his gospel, Jesus' predictions had been fulfilled. Clement, according to Clement of Rome, writing in 96 AD, Peter had suffered martyrdom under Nero during the final years of his reign, sometime between AD 64 to 66. 
Tertullian in 2.12 said that Peter was crucified uh, between A.D. 64 and 68. Tertullian, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I skipped there. Tertullian in 2.12 said that Peter was crucified. Uh, <clears throat> now that's like a scribal area. I jumped off to textual criticism. What I did there is exactly a typical scribal area where you go back to the page and you jump a lot, you jump up a line. And I just read that without without a break, but I actually did that. Uh, anyways, Tertullian in two twelve said that Peter was crucified. In Peter's case, in Peter's case, he did not lay down his life on his own will as Jesus did, but Quote, another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. So, um, <clears throat> uh, if you can save your life, then you should save it. If they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. Now, Jesus didn't do that, right? <laughs> so, there's a difference here between what Peter could do and what Christians can do. So, there's a difference between how Jesus laid down his life. He really laid down his life willingly. And we saw as we studied the days before the crucifixion, it was almost like Jesus was saying to Pilate and others, come on, let's get on with this. So, uh, so that, that is unique. But obviously there's, there's a Venn diagram, you know, it overlaps. Some of the things are common and some of them are not in regard to Peter's crucifixion versus Jesus's, Right? Uh, so, Peter was given the opportunity to make right his denial, and he did. Sometimes the Lord gives us such, opportun- such opportunities, and sometimes he doesn't. And the longer you live, perhaps you build up more regrets as you live longer. What, what, I don't want to be depressive, <laughs> but I, I don't want to say something very different. That's just realistic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look at the trouble Hezekiah got in by having those extra 15 years. <laughs> he, he accumulated other regrets as a result of that. Uh, but why are we talking about this? Peter, Peter had an opportunity to make something that he was very humbled and ashamed about his stumbling, he had an opportunity to make it right. And sometimes we feel that way in our lives, that the Lord sometimes gives us the opportunity to make something right, and other times other times he doesn't give us the opportunity to, to make it right, you know. And and those are those are his decisions and we must learn to accept them is what is what I wrote there. So <clears throat> Jesus goes on, and when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. Now, it seems to correct, correct to conclude that at this point in the conversation, the other six disciples are present. We know there's seven disciples present here. We looked at that last week. And so, we, we know they're present because Jesus started this interaction asking Simon, Simon, do you love me more than these? Okay, <laughs> do you love me more than these? And John tells us who the these are in the passage. He lists the names of who they are. So right at this juncture, uh, they're together as a group. <clears throat> 
And this invitation to follow Jesus in verse 19 may have two meanings. Jesus invites Peter to go for a walk with him on the beach. It may also convey a reiterating of Jesus' initial call recorded in Matthew 4.19. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And even if the second sense is not in verse 19b, it certainly is in verse 22. Uh, Let me get back there. It is certainly in verse 22, Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So it, that this is certainly, I follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men when we get down to verse 22. We know that. There's some un- uncertainty about verse 9. So, uh, so now we incident, incidentally learn from verse 20 that they had left the group. You see this? All right. And when he had spoken this, he, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. So suddenly, <laughs> uh, John switches the scene. And now what we see is Peter and Jesus walking somewhere. And... Peter turns around and looks behind him, and there's John a few steps behind. So now these three have separated from the seven, and they're walking on the beach at early morning. And so Peter, uh, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, And now John interrupts the narrative, who also had who, the disciple whom Jesus loved, also had leaned on his breath at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And then he gets back to the narrative in verse 21. Peter, seeing him, seeing the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? So our our task right now is, why did John interrupt the narrative to... Tell us this. (laughs) He interrupts the narrative and he wants his readers to know that he's the one that was there at the Last Supper and the one who leaned his head on Jesus' breast and and asked Jesus, who is betraying you? He, He wants the reader of this gospel to know that. And so why why is he doing that? Likely he's doing that. It's his way of saying, I am not only an eyewitness, I am close to Jesus. I am the one who who, that evening was right there and I I spoke to him, I leaned my head on his breast. What he's saying is, is he's, he's flexing his historical witness muscles. Let me express it that way. He wants us to know he was there. And he's doing the same thing now. He's telling us, I know what this conversation was between Jesus and Peter. That's what he's doing. 
I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what he's doing. And so then he goes on. Uh, Peter then, seeing him, and, and the disciple whom Jesus loved is witnessing all this and hearing this, okay? Peter, uh, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? So let me, let me pick it back up in my, my notes here. <clears throat> okay, so Peter, having heard about his future and hearing the footsteps of John on the beach, I don't know if he heard him or not, but Peter turned around for some reason and notices John following. Uh, Peter, having heard of his future, seeing John following them, questions Jesus about John. I'm assuming that John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. So Peter says, but Lord, what about this man? Now, what exactly is Peter asking? I'm not sure. What is he asking? If Peter understood Jesus to be in some way predicting his death, Peter's death, then Peter is asking perhaps the same question about the disciple whom Jesus loved. Is Peter asking, well, how will this man's life end? Perhaps, if the context is really narrow, you've just told me how my life is going to end. Now, what about this man? How is this man's life going to end? I, that, that may very well be, you know, you've given a prophecy about my life and how it's going to end. Are you going to give a prophecy about John's life and how John's life's going to end? Okay. Will he meet a similar fate? Uh, Jesus' response is, is interesting and significant. Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So, a couple of things here. It's Jesus' choice that John remain living after Peter has glorified God. If we assume, if I will, that he remain till I come. Jesus, interesting, Jesus speaks as one who presumes to decide how long his disciples will live and how they will die. Right? That's what he's doing here. He's saying, Peter, this is what your life, this is how you're going to die. What about this man? Well, if I will that he remain, then what? He's going to remain. This is his power. This is his control. Okay? And that's very comforting. He has such authority and power, and that is a good thing for all of his disciples, isn't it? And I would say that's equally true for all of us. We are his disciples. We're not his apostles, but we are his disciples. And, and, and he is shepherding all of us to glory. I love that expression in Hebrews, leading many sons to glory. And, and so, uh, I mean, we know those things from the bare sovereignty of God, and I don't use that negatively, saying the bare sovereignty of God, but it's kind of special to know them from this perspective, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Okay, so... Why did Peter ask the question? I'm not sure. Some have suggested it was out of some type of competition. I, I don't think so. Although the disciples had argued among themselves as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom. So I don't think Peter asked the question um, 
out of some type of comp, uh, competition. Jesus' response, may it might be a slight reproof, and or at least it's an exhortation. Stay focused, Peter. Uh, be interrupted because the battery is low. Is there a switch? No. That'll do it. <laughs> Unplugged off the wall there. All right. Let's get back to the train of thought here. So, um, yeah, there's a slight, perhaps there's a slight, um, if not a reproof, at least an exhortation. And the exhortation is, stay Peter. If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you in those words? What is that to you? Jesus has the authority to decide both the disciples' course of life and fate. Peter is told that John's fate is none of his business. What is that to you? Okay. So I think there's a bit of an exhortation there. Don't worry about John, Peter. <laughs> Peter has been told what will befall him. Let Peter focus on obeying Jesus regardless of the course others must pursue. Okay. Your focus is to follow me. So, Peter, follow me. What is that to you? What Peter must do is clear. Follow me. And, G and Jesus says that, right? Um, yeah. If I will that he remain, what is that to you? And th again, he, Jesus repeats, you follow me. <laughs> That's your focus. Your focus isn't what, what John's doing, what I'm telling John to do, having John do. You stay focused on following me. And that's what he said earlier. Okay. And that, of course, can be applied to all of us as well. You know, God calls us providentially in other ways to various things. And our focus has to be following him uh, and not what's going on with everybody else. Um, so... May the Lord help us do that. So, okay. So, now let's keep going. Um, okay. What Peter must do is clear. Follow me. Following Jesus, that is what? Trusting and obeying him. If you want to reduce it down to the two simplest words, following him would be trusting and obeying. Trusting and obeying him must be Peter's focus. Now, in the command, you follow me, Peter again is, is commissioned. He's commissioned or recommissioned. Uh, you follow me. So we have two servants put into the field for different laborers. There is no lessening of either disciple. One of them may be called to immediate evangelistic and pastoral ministry and the martyr's crown, and the other to a longer life and to bear a historical theological witness in written form. 
And the Gospel of John is a historical, theological masterpiece, isn't it? Uh, you know, compared to the other, the other three Gospels are great too, but, but, but this disciple that remains, who wrote this Gospel, produced a historical, theological masterpiece. I don't think, I think I, I should have quotes on, I, I paraphrased this from somebody else. I didn't create this paragraph. Uh, I, I didn't create that paragraph on my own. Uh, so I should have put a reference in there. Uh, so that, the, the author of that paragraph, wherever, wherever that has come from, and I'm not sure I quoted it directly, but anyways, my mind isn't the only mind behind that paragraph. He's pointing out that, that uh, God calls different people to different tasks. Okay? And, that the, and this situation between Peter and John is an example of that. It's just an example of how he's going to use these two, two disciples. Uh, <clears throat> and what, ha- what happened to, to, to this John that's going to remain, uh, whose son was he? Zebedee. Did Zebedee have another son? James. How long did James survive? Not long at all. James was martyred in Acts chapter 12. So that was before Peter. <laughs> Peter was going to be next, and the angel broke him out of, broke him out of prison. Otherwise, Peter was next because... Because Herod saw martyr, martyr, killing James got so much favor from the Jews, Herod thought, "Well, I'll do the same to Peter. You know, I need to, I need to have the Jews liking me, so I'll do that by killing the Jewish Christians." So John lives long, Peter lives longer than James, and James is martyred uh, not that long into the New Testament church. So there you have uh, three, three apostles with different. Different, very different paths uh, <clears throat> that Jesus had them on. So, okay, uh, let's see. Now, accounts, John tells us, accounts circulated among the disciples concerning Peter and John. Uh, let's go to the next verse. Now, John is elderly. He's writing this maybe around 90 or... 90 A.D., he's writing this around the end of the first century. Peter has already been martyred when, before John writes this gospel. Okay. So, Jesus said to him, okay, verse 20, Then this saying, this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. And this disciple here is referring to the disciple whom Jesus loved. The saying went out that this disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Now, John thinks he explained this perfectly clear to his original audience, all right? And maybe it was, but it is not perfectly clear to us as to what, you know. But John probably thought, they'll get it. Uh, and there's some things here that are, very, that are very difficult to understand. Some we can understand. 
So let's see. As John writes his gospel decades after this encounter with Jesus, he's aware that a misunderstanding of Jesus' statement is circulating. Okay? See, Jesus' statement is circulating. Get this historically right, okay? So this statement, um, what Jesus said here to Peter and John, is not written in any of the synoptic Gospels, correct? So even if the synoptic Gospels are written by this time, that statement's not in them. So, but... There's the, the point I'm driving toward is there's oral tradition that's operating along the written Gospels. And at the time that John wrote this Gospel, there is an oral tradition circulating about this saying of Jesus. The brethren know this saying. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Okay, and I don't think the saying went out is that this disciple would not die. I think the actual saying went out, if I will that he remain till I come, and they understood it to mean that John would not die before the Lord's coming. So all I'm saying here is you have a glimpse right here of this whole matter of the oral tradition operating in parallel as Scripture is being written. And this is a concrete example that that's going on. Are, are you see what I'm saying? In this class, I always stop to try to point out things about understanding the Scripture itself. And we, we just have an interesting example here of, of oral tradition operating regarding Jesus saying, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So... The saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Okay. So this is circulating. And John is trying to correct that mistake by what he's writing here. So let me get back onto my notes here. So uh, <clears throat> if John wrote his gospel somewhere between 80 and 90, he is quite elderly at this point, and he's seeking to correct an anticipation on part of some that he will continue living until the Lord returns. Well, for those who were expecting Jesus to return in their generation, the older John became, they would think the nearer was the return of Christ. How much longer can it be? You know, John, boy, he, you know, he, how much longer is this guy going to live? He can't live much longer. And Christ is going to come back before John dies. So they're expecting an imminent return of Jesus because John is now an elderly man and they've misunderstood Jesus' statement. Um, so... So, unless this misunderstanding was cleared up, when, when John did die, the faith of these early followers would suffer a shock. That would. We know, we ha we know we're having that difficulty in the New Testament 
We know that from the letters to the Thessalonians. We know that from 2 Peter. Uh, his promise is not slack. Don't consider it slow. So we know it from this passage in John. We know it from Thessalonians. And we know it from Peter that there was this expectation that Jesus was going to come back before that generation passed away. And it, it's cropping up here based on this saying of Jesus. So, okay, so that expression, this saying went out, okay, I already said that. The most difficult matter to understand in this text is what does Jesus mean when he says then, if I will that he remain until I come? What does that mean? If, if that doesn't mean I will that he's still alive when I come, well, then what does it mean? I don't know. <laughs> okay. None of your business. <laughs> None of your business. It's not hard to see that this statement would be understood that John will be living when Jesus returns. John's explanation, which I'm not sure... John's explanation, which I'm sure he thought was significant, sufficiently clear to his first century readers, is not clear to us. So that's his expression. Yet, here's John's supposed clarification. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? Possibly. John lived beyond the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's one way you could take what he means. Before I come in judgment on Israel. That's one possible thing that, you know... And, and we see that, of course, in Jesus' statement in the Gospel. This generation shall not pass away until all these things are accomplished. This statement is like, kind of like those in the synoptics. That Christ is going to return, or, or there are going to be signs of his return, and this generation is going to witness it. And, and I think most of those relate to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and perhaps the idea of coming here is Jesus coming in judgment. I don't have that written in, in the notes here, but that's one possible, um, possible way to take this. Now, another way of understanding this is that the conditional, if I will that, is really a conditional. The point being, Jesus has the authority to have John remain till he comes, but that, that not, does not necessarily mean that he will do this. Jesus certainly wills that John outlive Peter, but maybe the conditional is truly a conditional, and we're not to assume that Jesus actually wills that. That's the best I can do on, on, that, on that text. And... Uh, and it's about the best I could glean from the commentaries I tend to usually read. So there, this, you know, there there are places in Scripture where um, 
it's like the author and the readers know something that we don't. And Paul writes to the Corinthians that way. Paul knows their questions. The Corinthians know their questions. But when we read it, we don't know what the questions are. And so, anyways. Uh, okay, so where are we now? Um, we are at verse 24. Unless anybody have question or comment at, at this point? Uh, was that? <laughs> okay. I, all right. Well, they get more difficult as we go. <laughs> uh, act, actually, uh, where are we at? We're, at uh, we're down here now. Um, we're down to verse 24. Uh, oh, boy. Do I have enough time to do this? Uh, maybe I do. Sure, let's, let's do it. <clears throat> John's closing claim <clears throat> to the truthfulness of the record. So when we get to verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Okay, well, we've got to grapple with this one too. Um, the author who has studiously kept himself hidden in the background <laughs> reveals himself more directly than any time earlier in the entire gospel. He finally says here, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he clearly identifies himself as the author of the gospel in this verse. Because this refers back to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, no doubt, a few of the pronouns in verses 23 through 25 are challenging. Without a lot of explanation, here is how I understand these pronouns. And I'm going to read this through from verse 20 to verse 25. And I'm going to fill in the pronouns with what I think are the correct references. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following. Now, that's in the text. There's no pronoun there. So, the guy who's following is the disciple whom Jesus loved, okay? Uh, following. Peter, seeing the dis him, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Jesus, But, Lord, what about this Man, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus said to Peter, If I will that he, the disciple whom Jesus loved, remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying went out among the brethren that this disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him, Peter, that he, the disciple whom Jesus loved, would not die. But if, it, but if I will that he, the disciple whom Jesus loved, remain till I come, what is that to you, Peter? This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. The point I'm trying to 
prove is that the this in verse 24-25 there is a reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved. The this, okay? So this is, this is the disciple who testifies of these things. The disciple whom Jesus loves is the one who testifies of these things. And the one and wrote these things. So the author of these things is the disciple whom Jesus loves. And we know that his testimony is true. Okay. And we know that the disciple whom Jesus loves testimony is true. So we're all done. No. Who is the we? <laughs> okay. All of a sudden he says we. <laughs> So who's the we? So, all right. So the disciple whom Jesus loved is bearing witness as a close associate with Jesus. He's asserting his historical credentials. His closeness to Jesus and the events surrounding Jesus qualify him to make the statement, and we know that his disciple whom Jesus loved, testimony is true. It's kind of awkward because he's, he's talking about himself. If he's part of the we, and he is, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved is part of the we. So, and we know that his testimony is true. He's saying, I know that my testimony is true, but I'm not the only one that knows that. I know my testimony is true. Others know that my testimony is true also. He has to mean at least that much by the we, right? Has to. And we know that his testimony is true. It's a bit awkward. But the we is a self-reference. I've already said that. And it must include others. Now, that John is among the we and that verse 24 is written by the same person that's writing verse 23 and 25, that is clear from the singular first person reference in verse 25. All right. And there are many... And there are also many th other things which Jesus did which that were written in the book one by one, I suppose that the world itself, that is the first time the author ever refers to himself in the first person singular. <laughs> so this is the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he actually comes out and refers to himself in first person singular so, um, this is the disciple, that is the I, okay, and the this are the same person here. Okay. Now, all right. So, the we includes the disciple whom Jesus loved us. There are a number of possibilities. Who is it? The two most popular are, number one, the author is not alone in... The author is not alone in knowing and believing his testimony is true. 
That's the point. He knows his testimony is true, and others with him, I've already said that, also know that his testimony is true. So, and we, the others with him, know that his testimony is true. So, um, a second possibility, the others could be, more specifically, a community that formed around the beloved disciple that John's readers are familiar with. Well, we know who John is talking about. You know, John, there's this community of believers in the New Testament church that surround John or minister to by John. You know, it would be like if, if I said to you about Sovereign you know, Grace Bible Church and, you know, we all went to the picnic, you would know who I'm referring to. I'm referring to the fellow members of this church went to the picnic. And so John might be thinking those that read this, they're going to know it's his community um, uh, that, that, you know, yeah, to which John left his gospel and imparted his teaching. Now, interestingly, on this number two here, we have two other examples of this similar, his use of the we. And the first one is up here in John chapter 14, uh, we'll just have to go there this way. John 14, John chapter 1 and verse 14, I'm sorry. John chapter 1, verse 10. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. So perhaps this we and the ending we are, are the same we. Okay, John is writing this singular, but when he talks about those that actually saw him, it's more than just him. It's a community of people. So uh, he does that here. We beheld his glory. And the other place he does that, you know where the other place is? Very significant. It's First John, his letter. That which was from the beginning which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So what's common between everyone in this we? They're all first-hand witnesses. Everybody in this we is a first-hand eyewitness. And so he seems to be using the same language in all those three places. So I really like number two as the option of explaining what the, we, what the we means. And what's interesting there is in John chapter 20, the we has to do with eyewitnesses. And in his letter, 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, the we is what? Eyewitnesses. And now we understand how to take John 1.14 he really means that literally, we beheld his glory. He, he means in that statement, with our eyes and our ears and everything, we beheld his glory. Not simply just like we behold his glory through the teaching. But John 1.14 likely means we beheld his glory as the witnesses. So, uh, let's see. Uh, there's a third option, which... 
I'm not very good at explaining, and I didn't have time to look this back up. Others lean toward the understanding the we is an editorial we. And examples of this can be found in John's writings. And uh, I don't have the references for you as to what an editorial we is. Anybody know what an editorial we is? I think if we saw some, we would... I think we use them in the English language too, but I just can't come up with a concrete example. We do, but you refer to the history of the text. It's a history of the text statement kind of thing. You know, um, when Paul says, um, you know, uh, Silas and Timothy and those with me, we um, hope to come soon or whatever. Oh, yeah. You know, know, there's the text. He's he's talking outside of the text now. Yeah. You know, and including those in it that are contributing to his writing. Yeah. Yeah, there's another way. Now that you said that, that triggered me to think, and I would often joke about the, the managerial we. You know, when, when we're on the work day and I talk to someone, now we're going to take this tree down. And then I pause and I go, well, that's a managerial we. I'm not actually going to take the tree down. You are. Okay, so that's called the managerial we. So. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. We, yeah it, it's, uh, when you're on the receiving of that, you, you know when you're receiving a managerial we. And, then, and so um, that's just kind of, it's just kind of humorous. Uh, so... Uh, actually, you know, I, I kind of prefer the community approach, the second option here. So, all right, John's claiming to be a credible witness. Okay, I already said it's parallel, so there, we did make it. Okay. So it's a very interesting and, and significant passage. I, I hope perhaps you might feel a little more comfortable with it when you, when you read it. Um, and this is what our Lord is doing during those 40 days. I mean, he's, he's setting everything up. He's setting it all up for Pentecost forward. Stay here in Jerusalem. Don't, don't go back to Galilee anymore. You guys, you don't realize it, but you're never going back. <laughs> don't, don't, don't go back. Stay here un, un, until you have power from on high. And Peter is fully, um, fully commissioned. Okay? And so Peter is restored, fully commissioned, and at the the early beginning of the church, Peter is going to be the foundation of the early first one or two decades of the church. Uh, Peter is going to be uh, the the foundation there. And that's also made clear in this passage. So, And we're sucked up into all this because it's not only... I love that in John 17. I'm not praying, Jesus says, I'm not praying for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's you and me. I get great comfort from that part of Jesus' prayer. Because we're not first-hand witnesses. We don't know any first-hand witnesses. But obviously Jesus intended that the majority of people who believe in him are going to believe in him through the apostolic word. And he even told Thomas that. <laughs> so, all right, any, any questions or, or comments?
And again, it's great to have Marge and Jack here uh, with us tonight. Jack used to be a regular here uh, years ago. Okay, uh, let's see. Brian, you have the microphone again. <laughs> Lead us in prayer. Oh, Lord, um, it's so humbling to come before your presence and have your word with us and to be able to feed upon it. I do pray that as you commissioned your apostles to be fishers of men, Lord, that uh, we would feed off of their witness and the Holy Spirit's witness through the word, and that we would go out, Lord, and declare Mm -hmm. the praises among the Gentiles, Lord, and among the world uh, that does not know you, that we would be a light, Lord, uh, that is a city set in a hill um, that cannot be hid. I pray, Lord, that we would live and walk humbly before your face, that we would behold you, Lord, and um, uh, regardless of what we're going through, help us, Lord, to receive the good and the difficult uh, from your hand, knowing that all things work together for those that are called according to your purpose, Lord. We thank you for uh, the witness of John and others and of Peter, Lord, and what they went through, Lord, knowing their weakness as men, that um, it is possible even for us, having the faith of a mustard seed, Lord, to move the same mountains that they did. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us this week, that you would be with those that need an extra measure of your grace upon them uh, as they live and as they follow you. I pray that we would encourage each other and build each other up in our most holy faith, that as our pastor prayed earlier, that you would find us worthy of the calling you've called us. It is a high calling, Lord, and we know that it's not possible to be perfect in this life, but you have called us to be perfect as you are perfect, and you have called us, Lord, to be more like your son, to be ever being shaped after his image, Lord, and not the world, not our own, and not the one that um, Satan chose for the world, Lord. And I pray that you would just strengthen us. Lord, let us put on the whole armor of God. Let us not forget the pieces that you have given us to ward off the evil one and to ward off, Lord, our own weaknesses, our own doubt, and keep us strong. And I pray that you would bring us back together again and that you would grow our congregation, that you would grow our meeting here, that we might enjoy, uh, declare your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.